Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's February 4th, 2020. It's the 12th day of the impeachment trial of President Donald J. Trump. I'm Margaret Taylor, senior editor at Lawfare. Yesterday, senators listened to the closing arguments of the parties, and the trial formally adjourned until 4 p.m. tomorrow, February 5th. Though it is technically not a formal part of the impeachment proceedings, senators now have their chance to make speeches in 10-minute increments on the Senate floor. In this episode, we have compiled a sampling of statements made by senators from both sides of the aisle. This is the impeachment, episode 12. Senators have the opportunity to make speeches on the Senate floor. Mr. President, these past weeks, the Senate has grappled with as grave a subject as we ever consider, a request from a majority in the House to remove the president. The framers took impeachment extremely seriously, but they harbored no illusions that these trials would always begin for the right reasons. Alexander Hamilton warned the demon of faction would extend his scepter over the House of Representatives at certain seasons. He warned that an intemperate or designing majority in the House might misuse impeachment as a weapon of ordinary politics rather than an emergency tool of last resort. The framers knew impeachment might begin with overheated passions and short-term factionalism, but they knew those things could not get the final say. So they placed the ultimate judgment, not in the fractious lower chamber, but in the sober and stable Senate. They wanted impeachment trials to be fair to both sides. They wanted them to be timely, avoiding the procrastinated determination of the charges. They wanted us to take a deep breath and decide which outcome would reflect the facts, protect our institutions, and advance the common good. They call the Senate, quote, the most fit depository of this important trust. Tomorrow, we'll know whether that trust was well-placed. The drive to impeach President Trump did not begin with the allegations before us. Here was reporting in April of 2016. This is before the president was the nominee. Donald Trump isn't even the Republican nominee yet, but Impeachment is already on the lips of pundits, newspaper editorials, constitutional scholars, and even a few members of Congress. Here was the Washington Post headline minutes after President Trump's inauguration. The campaign to impeach President Trump has begun, the Washington Post said. The articles of impeachment before us were not even the first ones House Democrats introduced. This was a go-around number. Uh, This was a go-around number of roughly seven. Those previously alleged high crimes and misdemeanors, Mr. President, included things like 
being impolite to the press and to professional athletes. It insults the intelligence of the American people to pretend this was a solemn process reluctantly begun because of withheld foreign aid. No, Washington Democrats' position on this president has been clear literally for years. Their position was obvious when they openly rooted for the Mueller investigation to tear our country apart, and were disappointed, disappointed when the facts proved otherwise. It was obvious when they sought to impeach the president over and over. Here's their real position, Mr. President. Washington Democrats think President Donald Trump committed a high crime or misdemeanor the moment, the moment he defeated Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. That is the original sin of this presidency, that he won and they lost. Ever since, the nation has suffered through a grinding campaign against our norms and institutions from the same people who keep shouting that our norms and institutions need defending. A campaign to degrade our democracy and delegitimize our elections from the same people who shout that confidence in our democracy must be paramount. We've watched a major American political party adopt the following absurd proposition. We think this president is a bull in a china shop, so we're going to drive a bulldozer through the china shop to get rid of it. This fever led to the most rushed, least fair, and least thorough presidential impeachment inquiry in American history. The House inquiry into President Nixon spanned many months. The special prosecutor's investigation added many more months. With President Clinton, the independent counsel worked literally for years. It takes time to find facts. It takes time to litigate executive privilege, which happened in both those investigations. Litigating privilege questions is a normal step that investigators of both parties understood was their responsibility. But this time, no lengthy investigation, no serious inquiry. The House abandoned its own subpoenas. They had an arbitrary political deadline to meet. They had to impeach by Christmas. They had to impeach by Christmas. So in December, House Democrats realized the framers' nightmare, a purely partisan majority approved two articles of impeachment over bipartisan opposition. And after the Speaker of the House delayed for a month in a futile effort to dictate Senate process to senators, the articles finally arrived over here in the Senate. Over the course of the trial, senators, senators have heard sworn video testimony from 13 witnesses, over 193 video clips. We have entered more than 28,000 pages of documents into evidence, including 17 depositions. And our members ask 180 questions. In contrast to the House proceedings, our trial gave both sides a fair platform. Our process tracked with the structure that senators adopted for the Clinton trial 20 years ago. 
Just as Democrats, such as the current Democratic leader and then-Senator Joe Biden, argued at length in 1999, we recognize that Senate traditions impose no obligation, no obligation, to hear new live witness testimony if it is not necessary to decide the case. If it is not necessary to decide the case, let me emphasize, the House managers themselves said over and over that additional testimony was not necessary to prove their case. They claimed dozens of times that their existing case was, quote, overwhelming and incontrovertible. That was the House managers saying their evidence was overwhelming and incontrovertible. At the same time, they were arguing for more witnesses. But in reality, both of the House accusations are constitutionally incoherent. The obstruction of Congress charge is absurd and dangerous. House Democrats argued that any time the Speaker invokes the House's sole power of impeachment, the President must do whatever the House demands. No questions asked. Invoking executive branch privileges and immunities in response to House subpoenas becomes an impeachable offense itself. Here's how Chairman Schiff put it back in October, quote, any action, any action that forces us to litigate or have to consider litigation will be considered further evidence of obstruction of justice. That, Mr. President, is nonsense impeachment. That is nonsense. Impeachment is not some magical constitutional trump card that melts away the separations between the branches of government. The framers did not leave the House a secret constitutional steamroller that everyone somehow overlooked for 230 years. When Congress subpoenas executive branch officials with questions of privilege, the two sides either reach an accommodation or they go to court. That's the way it works. So can you imagine if the shoe were on the other foot? How would Democrats and the press have responded if House Republicans had told President Obama, we don't want to litigate our subpoenas over Fast and Furious, so if you make a set foot in court, we'll just impeach you. We'll just impeach you. Of course, that's not what happened. The Republican House litigated its subpoenas for years until they prevailed. So much for obstruction of Congress. And the abuse of power charge is just as unpersuasive and dangerous. By passing that article, House Democrats gave in to a temptation that every previous House has resisted. They impeached a president without even alleging a crime known to our laws. Now, Mr. President, I do not subscribe to the legal theory that impeachment requires a violation of a criminal statute, but there are powerful reasons why for 230 years, every presidential impeachment did in fact allege a criminal violation. The framers expressly explicitly rejected impeachment for maladministration, a general charge under English law that basically encompassed bad management 
a sort of general vote of no competence, except in the most extreme circumstances, except for acts that overwhelmingly shocked the national conscience, the framers decided presidents must serve at the pleasure of the electorate, the electorate, and not at the pleasure of House majorities. As Hamilton wrote, it is one thing to be subordinate to the laws and another to be dependent, dependent on the legislative body. So House Democrats sailed into the new and dangerous waters, the first impeachment unbound by the criminal law. Any House that felt it needed to take this radical step owed the country the most fair and painstaking process, the most rigorous investigation, the most bipartisan effort. Instead, we got the opposite, the exact opposite. The House managers argued that the president could not have been acting in the national interest because he acted inconsistently with their own conception of the national interest. Let me say that again. The House managers were basically arguing that the president could not have been acting in the national interest because he acted inconsistently with their conception of the national interest, a conception shared by some of the president's subordinates as well. This does not even approach a case for the first presidential removal in American history. It doesn't even approach it. Such an act cannot rest alone on the exercise of a constitutional power combined with concerns about whether the president's motivations were public or personal and a disagreement over whether the exercise of the power was in the national interest. The framers gave our nation an ultimate tool for evaluating president's character and policy decisions. They're called elections. They're called elections. If Washington Democrats have a case to make against the president's reelection, they should go out and make it. Let them try to do what they failed to do three years ago and sell the American people on their vision for the country. I can certainly see why, given President Trump's remarkable achievements over the past three years, Democrats might feel a bit uneasy about defeating him at the ballot box. But they don't get to rip the choice away from the voters just because they're afraid they might lose again. They don't get to strike President Trump's name from the ballot just because, as one House Democrat put it, quote, I'm concerned that if we don't impeach him, he'll get reelected. The impeachment power exists for a reason. It is no nullity, but invoking it on a partisan whim to settle three-year-old political scores does not honor the framers' design. It insults the framers' design. Frankly, it's hard to believe that House Democrats ever really thought this reckless and precedent-breaking process would yield 67 votes to cross the Rubicon. Was their vision so clouded by partisanship that they really believed, they really believed this would be anywhere near enough for the first presidential removal in American history? Or was success beside the point? Was this all an effort to hijack our institutions for a month-long political rally?
Either way, Mr. President, the demon of faction has been on full display. But now it is time for him, the demon, to exit the stage. We have indeed witnessed an abuse of power, a grave abuse of power by just the kind of House majority that the framers warned us about. So tomorrow, tomorrow, the Senate must do what we were created to do. We've done our duty. We've considered all the arguments. We've studied the, quote, mountain of evidence, end quote. And tomorrow, we will vote. We must vote to reject the House abuse of power, vote to protect our institutions, vote to reject new precedents that would reduce the framers' design to rubble, vote to keep factional fever from boiling over and scorching our republic. I urge every one of our colleagues to cast the vote, the facts, the evidence, the Constitution, and the common good clearly require. Vote to acquit the president of these charges. The Democratic leader. Mr. President, thank you very much. We're in a quorum, we in a quorum? I ask unanimous consent the quorum be dispensed Without with. Without objection. Mr. President, there, the majority leader can come up on the floor and repeat his talking points, but there are some salient points that are irrefutable. The first, this is the first impeachment trial of a president or a trial, impeachment trial of anybody else that was completed that has no witnesses and no documents. The American people are just amazed that our Republican friends would not even ask for witnesses and documents. I thought the House did a very good job. I thought they made a compelling case. But even if you didn't, the idea that that means you shouldn't have witnesses and documents when we're doing something as august, as important, as an impeachment trial fails the laugh test. It makes people believe, correctly in my judgment, that the administration, its top people, and Senate Republicans are all hiding the truth. They're afraid of the truth. Second, the charges are extremely serious. To interfere in an election, to blackmail a foreign country, to interfere in our elections, gets at the very core of what our democracy is about. If Americans believe that they don't determine who is president, who is governor, who is senator, but some foreign potentate out of reach of any law enforcement can join us our elections, that's the beginning of end of democracy. So it's a serious charge. The Republicans refused to get the evidence because they were afraid of what it would show. And that's all that needs to be said. I yield the floor. Note the absence of a quorum. The clerk should call the roll. Mr. President. The senator from Iowa. As senators, we cast many votes during our time here, I've cast over 13,200. Each one of those votes is important, but a vote to convict or acquit the president on charges of impeachment is perhaps the most important vote a senator could ever cast. Until now, it's happened only twice in our nation's history, and it's something that should never be taken lightly. 
Now, President Trump has been charged of committing, according to the Constitution and in these articles, high crimes and misdemeanors for requesting a foreign leader investigating his potential political opponent and, number two, obstructing Congress's inquiry into those actions. For this, we're asking to permanently remove him from office. As a judge and juror, as we all are, I first ask whether the charges rise to an offense that unquestionably demands removal from office. If so, I then ask whether the House proved beyond a reasonable doubt that it actually occurred. The House's case fails on the first of those questions. The President's request is not impeachable conduct under our Constitution. A President isn't prohibited by law from engaging the assistance of a foreign ally in an anti-corruption investigation. The House tries to make up for this hurdle by subjecting that, by suggesting that subjective motive, in other words, political advantage, can turn on an otherwise unimpeachable act into an act that demands removal from office. I won't support such an irreversible break from the Constitution's standard for impeaching a president. The Senate is an institution of precedent. We're informed and guided by history and the actions of our predecessors. But our choices also actually make history. These days, that can be difficult to keep in mind. A rush to convict or acquit, convict or acquit, can lead to cut corners and overheated rhetoric. We're each bound by our oath to do impartial justice. As President Pro Temper of this institution, I recognize that we must also do justice to the Senate and to the Republic that this Senate serves. I've always made it a priority to hold judicial nominees to a standard of restraint and fidelity to the law. And as judges in this case, which every senator is, we should consider those factors which counsel restraint. These articles came to the Senate as a product of a flawed, unprecedented and partisan process. When the articles were voted by the full House, the only bipartisanship was those in opposition. Moreover, tonight, the Iowa caucuses will be finished. The 2020 presidential election is underway. Yet, we all are asked to remove the incumbent from the ballot based on an impeachment supported by only one party of the Congress. 
the Senate should take no part in endorsing the very dangerous new precedent that this would set for future impeachments. We know we need no, no new normal when it comes to impeaching a president. We've got precedents of the past that should be followed, and they haven't been followed. We've had more than 28 pages of evidence. We've had 17 witnesses and over 70 hours of open, transparent consideration by the Senate. The American people are more than adequately prepared to decide for themselves the fate of the president in November. This decision belongs to the voters. It's time to get the Senate back to work for the American people on issues of substance. I yield the floor. Madam President. Senator from New Hampshire. I come to the floor this afternoon to express my profound disappointment. This is a sad moment in our nation's history. I, like all of us in the Senate, came to this body to try and make a difference for our constituents, to address the kitchen table issues that affect their everyday lives. Lowering prescription drug costs, rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure, making college more affordable, protecting our environment, helping our veterans, supporting our small businesses. So many of the things that I and others here have worked on. Now, critics have argued that the impeachment process is nothing more than a political attack orchestrated by those who have wanted to remove this president since his election. I flatly reject that argument. I have repeatedly expressed my reluctance to the use of impeachment. Unfortunately, it is this president's disturbing actions that have put us in this position. President Trump went to great lengths to try and force the Ukrainian president to help smear Joe Biden, his political rival. This scheme included withholding military aid, and withholding a meeting at the White House with the Ukrainian president. Each of us here took an oath to support and defend the Constitution. And the Constitution requires us to do this job. It tells us that the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. And after the power to declare war, the power to impeach is among the most serious and consequential powers granted to Congress by our founding document. When we all stood here at the beginning of this trial, we took an oath to do, and I quote, impartial justice. That should mean a commitment to seek all of the facts. A fair trial means documents and witnesses, facts that will help us better understand the truth. Previous Senates understood this. In fact, every Senate impeachment trial in history included witnesses. Most recently, in the Judge Porteous impeachment trial in 2010, when I was one of the senators who served on that impeachment committee, we heard from 26 witnesses, 17 of whom had not testified before in the House. 
We believed then that Senate witnesses were important for an impeachment of a district court judge, federal district court judge. So why wouldn't we want witnesses in something as important as an impeachment of a sitting president? We know that documents exist that could help shed more light on this case. We also know of other witnesses with additional firsthand information that we have yet to hear from. We have one witness in particular, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, who has told the world he has relevant information and he's willing to testify. And yet, despite all of that, the Senate, on a partisan vote, refused to listen to Ambassador Bolton or any other witnesses. Members of this institution have willfully turned their backs on important, relevant, firsthand information. On the articles of impeachment before us, I've listened to the extensive arguments from both the House managers and the defense counsel for the president. Despite the administration's stonewalling, many courageous officials did come forward to testify at great personal and professional expense. I want to thank those who testified. Their bravery and commitment to the truth should be commended. But if the president is allowed to completely stonewall congressional impeachment investigations into executive branch abuses, then the co congressional power of impeachment is meaningless. As a senator, I never imagined I would have to participate in an impeachment trial of a sitting president. These proceedings cause strain and division, not just here in Congress, but across the country. I would much prefer that Congress be engaged in the critical bipartisan work that's needed on important issues, things that can improve lives across this country and move our nation forward. I hope that this body will move on from this disappointing day and will get back to the business of the country. Thank you, Madam President. I yield the floor and note the absence of a quorum. Clerk will call the roll. Mr. Alexander. Mr. President, I rise this evening to address the trial of Donald John Trump. The founders gave this body the sole power to try all impeachments. And exercising that power, we all know, is a weighty, weighty responsibility. This was only the third time in the history of our country that the Senate convened to handle a presidential impeachment and only the second in the past 150 years. I was part of a, of a small group that worked to secure a fair and honest and a transparent structure for the trial. And we based it on how this chamber handled the trial of President Clinton some 20 years ago. So there were 24 hours of arguments for each side, 16 hours of questions from members with the full House record admitted as evidence, that should have been more than enough to answer the questions. Do we need to hear more? Should there be additional process? But Mr. President, the structure we built should have been sufficient. 
but the foundation upon which it rested was rotted. The House rushed through what should have been one of the most serious, consequential undertakings of the legislative branch, simply to meet an artificial, self-imposed deadline. Prior presidential impeachments resulted from years of investigation, where subpoenas were issued and they were litigated, where there were massive amounts of documents that were produced and witnesses deposed, where resistance from the executive was overcome through court proceedings and through accommodations. The House failed in its responsibilities. The House failed in its responsibilities. And the Senate, the Senate should be ashamed by the rank partisanship that has been on display here. We cannot be the greatest deliberative body when we kick things off by issuing letters to the media instead of coming together to set the parameters of the trial and negotiate in good faith on how we should proceed. And for all the talk of impartiality, it is clear to me that few in this chamber approach this with a genuinely open mind. Some, some have been calling for the president to be impeached for years. Indeed, we saw just today clips that indicate headlines 19 minutes after the president was sworn into office calling for his impeachment. Others, others in this chamber saw little need to even consider the arguments from the House before stating their intentions to acquit. Over the course of the past few weeks, we've all seen the videos from 20 years ago where members who were present during the Clinton trial took the exact opposite stance than they take today. That level of hypocrisy is astounding, even for a place like Washington, D.C. The president's behavior was shameful and wrong. His personal interests do not take precedence over those of this great nation. The president has the responsibility to uphold the integrity and the honor of the office, not just for himself, but for all future presidents. Degrading the office by actions or even name-calling weakens it for future presidents and it weakens our country. All of this rotted foundation of the process, all of this led to the conclusion that I reached several days ago that there would be no fair trial. While this trial was held here in this Senate, was really litigated in the court of public opinion. For half the country, they'd already decided there had been far too much process. They considered the entire impeachment inquiry to be baseless, and they thought that the Senate should have just dismissed the case 
as soon as it reached us. And then for the other half, no matter how many witnesses were summoned or deposed, no matter how many documents were produced, the only way, the only way the trial could have been considered fair was it if it resulted in the president's removal from office. During the month that the House declined to transmit the articles to the Senate, the demon of faction extended his scepter. The outcome became clear, and a careless media cheerfully tried to put out the fires with gasoline. We debated witnesses instead of the case before the Senate. Rather than the president's conduct, the focus turned to how a lack of additional witnesses could be used to undermine any final conclusion. And what started with political initiatives that degraded the office of the president and left the Congress wallowing in partisan mud it threatened to drag the last remaining branch of government down along with us. As I tried to build consensus over the past few weeks, I had, I had many private conversations with colleagues, and so many, so many in this chamber share my sadness for the present state of our institutions. It's my hope that we've finally found bottom here, that both sides can look inward and reflect on the apparent willingness that each has to destroy not just each other, but all of the institutions of our government. And for what? Because it may help win an election? At some point, Mr. President, at some point for our country, winning has to be about more than just winning. Madam President. Senator from West Virginia. Madam Chair, I request to make um, remarks today, if I may, uh, until I conclude. Without objection. Madam President, I rise today to speak on the impeachment trial of President Donald John Trump. I know this was not a difficult decision for many of my friends and colleagues on both sides of the aisle, but it is one that has weighed heavily on me. Voting whether or not to remove a setting president is no easy decision, and it shouldn't be as the consequences for our nation are severe. As a moderate centrist Democrat from West Virginia with one of the most bipartisan voting records in the Senate, I've approached every vote I have cast in this body with an open mind and pride myself in working across the aisle to bring my Republican and Democrat friends together to do what is best for our country. Where I come from, party politics is more often overruled by just plain old common sense. And I have never, in over 35 years of public service, approached an issue with premeditated thoughts that my Republican friends are always wrong and my Democrat friends are always right. Since the people of West Virginia sent me here in 2010, I have never forgotten the oath I took to defend the Constitution and faithfully discharge the duties of the office of which I am honored to hold. It is by the Constitution that we sit here today as a court for the trial of impeachments. It is the Constitution that gives us what Hamilton called the awful discretion to remove the president from office. At the start of this trial, my colleagues and I took an oath 
swearing, swearing to do impartial justice. I have taken this oath very seriously throughout this process, and I would like to think that my colleagues have done the same. Because as the House managers and our former colleague, Republican Senator John Warner from Virginia said, it is not just the president who is on trial here, but the Senate itself. The framers of the Constitution chose the Senate for this grave task because, according to Hamilton, they expected senators to be able to preserve unawed and uninfluenced the necessary impartiality to discharge this awesome responsibility fairly, without flinching. The framers knew this would not be easy, but that is why they gave the job to us, the senators. They believed the Senate was more likely to be impartial and independent, less influenced by political passion, less likely to portray our oaths, and more certain to vote on facts and evidence. This process should be based simply on our love and commitment to our country, not the relationship any of us might have with this president. I have always wanted this president and every president to succeed, no matter what their party affiliation. But I deeply love our country and must do what is best for the nation. The Constitution refers to the impeachment trials and says the Senate must try impeachments. The framers chose their words carefully. They knew what a trial was and what it meant to try a case. By using the term standards of judicial fact-finding, it calls on us to do what courts do every day and receive relevant evidence and examine witnesses. Sadly, the Senate has failed to meet its constitutional obligation set forth by the framers to hold a fair trial and do impartial justice. And we have done so in the worst way, by letting tribal politics rule the day. I supported President Trump's calls for a fair trial in the Senate, which he suggested himself would include witnesses. But instead, this body has shortchanged uh, this body was shortchanged with the majority of my Republican colleagues, led by the majority leader, voting to move forward without relevant witnesses and evidence necessary for a fair trial as our framers intended. History will judge the Senate harshly for failing in its constitutional duty to try this case and do the impartial justice to defend the Constitution and to protect our democracy. Sadly, this is the legacy we leave to our children and grandchildren. Removing a president from the office to which the people have elected him is a grave step to take. But the framers gave the Senate this solemn responsibility to protect the Constitution and the people of this nation. Over the duration of this trial, I have listened carefully to both the House managers and the White House counsel make their case for and against the Articles of Impeachment. I commend both sides for their great and grueling work in defending their respective positions. The House managers have presented a strong case with an overwhelming display of evidence and shows what the president did was wrong. The president asked a foreign government to intervene in our upcoming election and to harm a domestic political rival. He delayed much needed security aid for Ukraine to pressure newly elected President Zelensky to do him a favor and he defied lawful subpoenas from the House of Representatives. However, the President's counsel too defended their actions by laying out their case of the President's actions. They pointed to the unclassified transcript of President Trump's July 25th call with newly elected Ukrainian President Zelensky to make the argument 
that Trump discussed burden sharing with other European countries and a mutual interest in rooting out corruption. They presented their views that the president was not given due process in the House of Representatives and highlighted the expedited nature of the House's proceedings. Finally, they argued, if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected and reelected to the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. Over the long days and nights of this trial, I have listened to both sides present their case and answer our questions. I remain undecided on how I will vote, but these points I believe to be true. First, it was not a perfect call. A newly elected President Zelensky with no experience in international politics gets a call from the leader of the free world asking for a favor related to U.S. domestic political affairs? No one, no one regardless of political party should think that the president did and what he did it was right. It was just simply wrong. Pressuring a NATO ally who is actively fighting off Russian aggression in its country is wrong. President Zelensky or anyone else should never feel beholden to the superpower of the world for a favor before it can receive military aid. It's not who we are as a country. We stand shoulder to shoulder with our allies and never ever condition our support of democracy for a political favor. Of all the arguments we have heard from the House managers and White House counsel during the long days and nights that we have said here, the most dangerous, the most troubling to me is the false claim that the president can do no wrong, that he is above the law, and if it's good for the re-election of the president, that it's good for our country. That is simply preposterous. That is not who we are as Americans. That is not how I was raised in the small coal mining town of Farmington, West Virginia. Where I was raised, no one believed they were better than anyone else and could act with total disregard for the well-being of their neighbor if it was for their best interest. That is not why over 230 years ago, the founding generation rebelled against a king and refused to crown a new one in this republic. So let me be clear, no one, not even the president, is above the law. Finally, the purpose of impeachment is not to punish the president, but to protect the public. The ultimate question is not whether the president's conduct warrants its removal, his removal from office, but whether our nation is better served by his removal by the Senate now with impeachment or by the decision the voters will make in November. As Hamilton warned us, impeachment seldom fell to agitate the passions of the whole community. They divide us on party lines and inflame our animosities. Never before in the history of our republic has there been a purely partisan impeachment vote of a president. Removing this president at this time would not only further divide our deeply divided nation, but also further poison our already toxic political atmosphere. <clears throat> in weighing these thoughts and of all the arguments brought forward in the case, I must be realistic. I see no path to the 67 votes required to impeach President Trump and haven't since this trial started. However, I do believe a bipartisan majority of this body would vote to censure President Trump for his actions in this manner. Censure would allow this body to unite across party lines and as an equal branch of government to formally denounce the president's actions and hold him accountable. His behavior cannot go unchecked by the Senate and censure would allow a bipartisan statement 
condemning his unacceptable behavior in the strongest terms. History will judge the Senate for how we have handled this solemn constitutional duty. And without bipartisan action, the fears of the great Senator Byrd will come true. As he said during the Clinton impeachment, the Senate will sink further into the mire because of this partisanship. There will be no winners on this vote, Byrd said. Each senator has not only taken a solemn oath to support and defend the Constitution, but also to do impartial justice, to help the nation. So help me God. That oath does not say anything about political party. Politics should have nothing to do with it. I am truly struggling with this decision and will come to a conclusion reluctantly as voting whether or not to remove a setting president is the most consequential decision that I or any U.S. senator will ever face. But regardless of my decision and in the absence of 67 votes, I am reminded again of the words of Senator Byrd. The House and Senate, Republicans and Democrats and the president must come together to heal the open wounds, bind up the damaged trust, and by our example, again, unite our people. For the common good, we must now put aside the bitterness that has infected our nation. We must begin by putting behind us the distrust and bitterness caused by this sorry episode and search for common ground instead of shoring up the divisions that have eroded decency and goodwill and dimmed our collective vision. It is not the legacy of the individual senators that we should be concerned about, but it is the legacy of this great institution, the United States Senate, that we leave for generations to come. I want to thank you, and I want to ask the good Lord to continue to bless this great country of ours during this trying time. Thank you, Madam President. Madam President. The Senator from Maryland is recognized. Madam President, it is the constitutional duty of each Senator to weigh the evidence before us and render a final verdict on the two articles of impeachment. On the charge of abuse of power, the House managers have presented overwhelming evidence, a quote, mountain of it, as Senator Alexander has conceded. For anyone with eyes to see or ears to hear, President Trump undoubtedly used the power of the presidency to withhold vital taxpayer-funded military aid from Ukraine to extort its government into helping him in his reelection campaign. He did so even though fighting Russian aggression is in our national interest. And make no mistake, the fact that he got caught before his scheme succeeded is no defense. The House has also proved its case on the charge of obstruction of Congress. President Trump has engaged in unprecedented stonewalling, a blanket cover-up that makes President Nixon look like an amateur. Not a single document produced, nor a single witness. Those who did testify did so despite the president's order not to show up. They raised their right hands and swore to tell the truth. They included Trump political appointees and a major donor to his campaign. Individuals who served our country in war. Dedicated public servants who took an oath to defend the Constitution. 
dismissing them as anti-Trumpers and Democratic witnesses is wrong, as were the President's attempts to bully and intimidate them. With the facts proven, the Senate must now ask, do these charges meet the standard for impeachment? The President claims impeachment requires charging him with a statutory crime. But that is a fringe view with patently absurd results. Their lead lawyer making this argument, Alan Dershowitz, did not hold this view during the Clinton impeachment. Nor does Trump's attorney general, William Barr. Nor does Jonathan Turley, Trump's constitutional law expert at the House Judiciary Committee hearing. Nor does the authority cited by the president's own lawyers here in the Senate and referenced nine times in their legal briefs. That authority, entitled Impeachment, a Handbook, states, and I quote, the limitation of impeachable offenses to those offenses made generally criminal by statute is unwarranted, even absurd, unquote. This suggested standard has been roundly dismissed because it leads to ridiculous conclusions. For example, that a president could withhold taxpayer-funded disaster assistance to the people of a state until their governor endorsed the president for re-election. Even Alan Dershowitz recognized the folly of his own argument, so he switched to saying impeachment requires criminal-like conduct. Well, the president's actions here have all the markings of criminal-like conduct, including what the founders would consider bribery and extortion. Moreover, as made clear by the nonpartisan legal opinion I requested from the GAO, the president and his team broke the impoundment control law as part of his overall extortion scheme. In fact, the toxic mix of misconduct we find here, a president corruptly using his office in a manner that compromises our national security to get a foreign government to help him stay in power is exactly the kind of abuse of power our founders most feared. Yet the president shows no sign of remorse or regret. His refusal to acknowledge any wrongdoing is an ongoing threat to our country and our Constitution. Even as this impeachment process has proceeded, he has continued to solicit other countries, including China, to help his reelection efforts. As he says, the Constitution gives him, and I quote, the right to do whatever I want as president, unquote. Let's be honest. President Trump sees the Constitution not as a check on his powers, but as a blank check to abuse power, and he won't change. His ongoing betrayal of the oath of office represents a clear and present danger to our Constitution, our democracy, and the rule of law. Those who argue we must not remove the president before the next election ignore the fact that the founders included an impeachment clause in the same Constitution that establishes four-year terms for the president. 
And they wrote the impeachment clause for exactly this moment, to prevent a corrupt president from enlisting a foreign power to help him cheat in an election. President Trump has committed high crimes and misdemeanors against the Constitution, and we must use the founder's remedy. We must find him guilty and remove him from office. Failure to convict will send a terrible signal that this president and any future president can commit crimes against the Constitution and the American people and get away with it. But it is not only the president who has violated his duty under the Constitution. So too has this Senate. Not because of the ultimate conclusion expected tomorrow, but because of the flawed way the Senate will reach that decision. While I strongly disagree with acquittal, that verdict might be accepted by most Americans if reached through a real and a fair trial. But this Senate did not hold a real trial. It held the first impeachment proceeding in our history not to call a single witness or seek a single document. President Trump's former National Security Advisor, John Bolton, offered us important information about the charges against the President. The Senate voted not to hear from him. President Trump said he wanted his acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, to testify at the Senate trial. But then he changed his mind, and Senate Republicans voted not to hear from him. I offered to have the Chief Justice make decisions about relevant witnesses and documents, just as impartial judges do in trials every day across America. In fact, unlike in every other courtroom, it preserved the right of the Senate to overturn the Chief Justice's decision by a majority vote. That is obviously a fair process for the President, but every Republican senator voted against it. And why? Because they're afraid of getting to the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. They know that as more incriminating facts come out, it becomes harder to acquit. And by joining the President's cover-up, they have become his accomplices. While the decision on the President will come tomorrow, the verdict on this Senate is already in. Guilty. Guilty of dereliction of its constitutional duty to conduct an impartial trial. And because the trial was a farce, the final result will be seen by most of the country as illegitimate, the product of a tainted trial. And President Trump must understand this. There is no exoneration, no vindication, no real acquittal from a fake trial. In failing to adhere to the principles of our Constitution and the values of our country, I fear we have done grievous injury to the nature of our democracy. I only hope America will find the resilience to repair the damage in the years to come. Madam President, I yield the remainder of my time. Madam President. Senator from Louisiana. Thank you, Madam President. I will vote against each of the House Democrats' articles of impeachment, and I would like to explain why. 
The, uh, the House Democratic, House Democrats impeachment proceedings and their articles of impeachment were and are fatally flawed. My friends, the House Democrats say that the president is out of control. What they really mean is that, is that the president is out of their control. And that is not grounds for impeachment. First, the, uh, the process. The House Democrats' impeachment proceedings were rigged. Speaker Pelosi and the House Democratic leadership decided before they even began to give President Trump a fair and impartial firing squad. Speaker Pelosi's and the House Democrats' judicial philosophy from the very beginning, beginning was guilty. That's why much of the proceedings was held in secret. Democracy, they say, dies in darkness, and I believe it. That's why the House Democrats hid the identity of the original accuser, the so-called whistleblower, thus prohibiting the American people from being able to judge the accuser's motives. And that's also why, Madam President, the House Democrats prevented the president and his account in his counsel from cross-examining the House Democrats' witnesses, from offering his own witnesses, from offering rebuttal evidence, and from even from being able to challenge the House Democrats' evidence. The House Democrats wouldn't even allow the president or his counsel to attend critical parts of the impeachment proceedings. The United States Senate, the United States Senate cannot and should not consider an impeachment based on such a deficient record. It is true that in America, no one is above the law, but no one is beneath it either. And fairness matters in our country. The House Democrats' impeachment is also flawed because it is a partisan impeachment. Its genesis is partisan rage. Not a single solitary House Republican voted for the Articles of Impeachment. Not one. The House Democrats made a conscious decision to turn impeachment into a routine Washington, D.C. political weapon, to normalize it. Our country's founders were concerned about impeachments based on partisan rage, and our, our country's founders were adamantly opposed. That's why in the Constitution they required a two-thirds vote by the Senate to impeach. 
Now a word about the, uh, the substance of the House Democrats' articles of impeachment. The House Democrats accused the president of obstruction of justice. Why? Because he chose to assert executive privilege and testimonial immunity when the House Democrats sought testimony and documents from some of the president's closest aides. Anyone, anyone who knows a law book from a J. Crew catalog does not take this charge seriously. Executive privilege and testimonial immunity are well-established, constitutionally-based, presidential and executive branch privileges that every president at one time or another has asserted. The proper course, the proper course by the House Democrats in the face of the assertion of these privileges was to seek judicial review. Go see a judge to seek judicial review from our third branch of government, which then would have balanced the policies underlining the privileges against the public interest of overriding the privileges. But the House Democrats chose not to do that. They cannot now complain. The House Democrats also accused President Trump of abuse of power. And if you listen carefully to their allegations, you'll see that they don't really argue that the President of the United States did not and does not have the inherent authority to pause United States foreign aid to Ukraine until Ukraine agreed to investigate corruption. That's clearly within the authority of the President of the United States. Instead, the House Democrats claiming to be able to read the President's mind say that the President did it with a corrupt motive because the investigation of corruption was against former President Joe Biden, a political rival. But the president didn't get Joe Biden's name out of the phone book. Why did the, the president ask for an investigation involving former Vice President Biden? Four words. Hunter Biden and Burisma. Now, Madam President, these are the facts. President Obama put Vice President Biden in charge of the foreign affairs of our country for two other countries, Ukraine and China. And in both instances, the former vice president's son, Hunter Biden, promptly walked away with millions, millions of dollars in contracts from politically connected companies in those two countries, including Burisma Holdings.
the message, the message that this behavior sent to the world was that America's foreign policy can be bought like a sack of potatoes. No fair-minded person can argue that an investigation of this possible corruption was not in the national interest. Madam President, the, uh, the House Democrats' impeachment proceedings and their articles of impeachment are an example of swamped-up Washington, D.C., both procedurally and substantively. On, on, the, on the basis of partisan rage, partisan rage coursing through their veins, the House Democrats seek to annul the 134 million Americans who voted in the 2016 presidential election, which resulted in the Trump presidency. And to do so when a new presidential election is just 10 months away. No one in the Milky Way who is fair-minded can believe this is good for America. A nation as great as ours deserves better. So to my Democratic friends, here's what I say. The 2016 presidential election is over. Let it go. Put aside your partisan rage. Stop regretting yesterday. And instead, let's try working together and creating tomorrow. Because after all, the future is just a bunch of things we do right now strung together. Madam President, I suggest the absence of a quorum. Will the Senator withhold his request? I beg your pardon, Madam will President? Will the Senator withhold his request for a quorum call? I will. In, 17, in 1974, after the House Judiciary Committee voted to approve articles of impeachment against President Nixon, Chairman Peter Rodino of my home state of New Jersey, a lifelong Newark resident of my home city, who had been thrust into the high-profile position only the previous year, returned to his office and called his wife. When she answered the phone, this chairman, this longtime congressman, broke down in tears and cried. Forty-six years later, our nation has found itself under similar duress. And God, I agree with my fellow Newarker. Impeaching a president is a profoundly sad time for our nation. It is a painful time, no matter what party, if you love your country, then this is heartbreaking. When we think about our history as Americans, so many of us have reverence 
For our founding fathers and our founding documents, they represented imperfect genius. We talk about the Declaration of Independence. We hail the Constitution. These documents literally bent the arc of not just our own history, but human history for democratic governance on the planet. And while these were milestones in the paths of our nation's relatively brief existence, the governing document that came before, between the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution is often overlooked, the Articles of Confederation. With the benefit of hindsight, it's easy to view the development of our nation as preordained, inevitable, as if it was an expected march towards the greatness we now collectively hail. That this was somehow a perfectly plotted path towards a more perfect union. But it wasn't. In 1787, as our founders gathered in Philadelphia, our fledgling country was at a crisis and at crossroads. And its future, like in so many moments of our past, was deeply uncertain. You see, when the framers designed our system of government in the Articles of, Co of Confederation, you could say they overcompensated. With the tyranny of King George, George III fresh in their minds, they created a government with power so diffuse and decentralized that nothing could really get done. Instead of one nation, we were operating essentially as 13 independent states. The federal government could not tax its citizens. It could not raise money. It lacked a judiciary and an executive branch. So when our framers arrived in Philadelphia in that hot summer, they would have to thread a difficult needle, providing for a strong central government that represented the people and one that also guarded against the corrupt tendencies that come when power is concentrated like they well knew was so in a monarchy. Our democratic republic was their solution. They needed a powerful executive, yes, but that executive needed guardrails and his power needed to be checked and balance. So the framers created what we now almost take for granted, three co-equal branches of government, the legislative, executive, and judicial. Each branch would have the ability to check the power of the other branches to ensure, as James Madison so profoundly argued, that ambition would be made to counteract ambition. But this system of checks and balances was not enough for our founders, still reeling from their experiences under the oppressive rule of the king, many feared an unaccountable autocratic leader. And so the founders created a mechanism of last resort impeachment. George Mason prophetically asked the founders to wrestle with the concept of impeachment at the Constitutional Convention, saying, and I quote, shall any man be above justice? 
The founders answered that question with a resounding no. The Constitution made clear that any federal officers, even the president, would be subject to impeachment and removal. No one, no one, no one is above the law. The hope of this nation will always lie with its people. And so we will not be cured today. And I tell you, tomorrow's vote, it is a defeat. But we, as the people facing other defeats in this body, we must never be defeated. Just like they beat us down at Stonewall. They beat us back in Selma. The hope of this nation lies with a people who face defeats but must never be defeated. And so my prayer for our republic now, yet in another crisis in the Senate, is that we cannot let this be leading us further and further into a treacherous time of partisanship and tribalism where we tear at each other, when we turn against each other, now is the time in America where we must begin in the hearts of people to turn to each other, to begin to find a way out of this dark time to a higher ground of hope. This is not a time to simply point blame at one side or another. This is a time to accept responsibility like our ancestors in the past, so understood that change does not come from Washington, it must come to Washington. As I was taught as a boy, we didn't get civil rights because Strom Thurmond came to the Senate floor one day and pronounced that he'd seen the light. No, this body responded to the demands of people and now is a time that we must demand the highest virtues of our land and see each other for who we are, our greatest hope and our greatest promise. We are weary people in America again. We are tired. We are frustrated. But we cannot give up. That flag over there, we who swear an oath to it, and don't just parrot words or say them with some kind of perfunctory obligation, but those who swear an oath to this nation must now act with a greater unyielding conviction. We must act to do justice. We must act to heal harms. We must act to walk more humbly. We must act to love one another unconditionally. And now, more than ever, perhaps we need to act in the words of a great abolitionist, a former slave, who in a dark, difficult time, when America was failing to live up to its promise, gave forth a sentiment in his actions captured in the poetry of Langston Hughes. He declared through his deed and through his work and through his sacrifice that America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. May we as a nation in this difficult time where we face the betrayal of a president, the surrender of obligation by a body, 
May we meet this time with our actions of goodwill, of a commitment to love and to justice, and to yet again elevating our country so that we too may be like it says in that great text, a light unto all nations. Thank you. Madam President. Senator from Maine. Madam President, for more than 200 years after our Constitution was adopted, only one president faced an impeachment trial before the United States Senate. That was Andrew Johnson in 1868. But now we are concluding our second impeachment trial in just 21 years. While each case must stand on its own facts, this trend reflects the increasingly acrimonious partisanship facing our nation. The founders warned against excessive partisanship, fearing that it would lead to instability, injustice, and confusion, ultimately posing a mortal threat to our free government. To protect against this, the founders constructed an elaborate system of checks and balances to prevent factions from sacrificing both the public good and the rights of other citizens. Impeachment is part of that elaborate system. The founders set a very high bar for its use, requiring that the president may only be removed by a two-thirds vote of the Senate. The framers recognized that in removing a sitting president, we would be acting against not only the office holder, but also the voters who entrusted him with that position. Thus, the Senate must consider whether misconduct occurred, its nature, and the traumatic and disruptive impact that removing a duly elected president would have on our nation. In the trial of President Clinton, I argued that in order to convict, we must conclude from the evidence presented to us with no room for doubt that our Constitution will be injured and our democracy suffer should the president remain in office one moment more. The House managers adopted a similar threshold when they argued that President Trump's conduct is so dangerous that he must not remain in power one moment longer. The point is, impeachment of a president should be reserved for conduct that poses such a serious threat to our governmental institutions as to warrant the extreme step of immediate removal from office. I voted to acquit President Clinton, even though the House managers proved to my satisfaction that he did commit a crime because his conduct did not meet that threshold. I will now discuss each of the articles. 
In its first article of impeachment against President Trump, the House asserts that the President abused the power of his presidency. While there are gaps in the record, some key facts are not disputed. It is clear from the July 25, 2019 phone call between President Trump and Ukrainian President Zelensky that the investigation into the Biden's activities requested by President Trump was improper and demonstrated very poor judgment. There is conflicting evidence in the record about the President's motivation for this improper request. The House managers stated repeatedly that President Trump's actions were motivated solely for his own political gain in the 2020 campaign. Yet the President's attorneys argued that the President had sound public policy motivations, including a concern about widespread corruption in Ukraine. Regardless, it was wrong for President Trump to mention former Vice President Biden on that phone call, and it was wrong for him to ask a foreign country to investigate a political rival. The House Judiciary Committee identified in its report crimes that it believed the President committed. Article 1, however, does not even attempt to assert that the President committed a crime. I sought to reconcile this contradiction between the report and the articles in a question I posed to the House managers, but they failed to address that point in their response. While I do not believe that the conviction of a president requires a criminal act, the high bar for removal from office is perhaps even higher when the impeachment is for a difficult-to-define non-criminal act. In any event, the House did little to support its assertion in Article 1 that the President will remain a threat to national security and the Constitution if allowed to remain in office. As I concluded in the impeachment trial of President Clinton, I do not believe that the House has met its burden of showing that the President's conduct, however flawed, warrants the extreme step of immediate removal from office. Nor does the record support the assertion by the House managers that the President must not remain in office one moment longer. The fact that the House delayed transmitting the articles of impeachment to the Senate for 33 days undercuts this argument. For all of the reasons I have discussed, I will vote to acquit on Article 1. Article 2 seeks to have the Senate convict the President based on a dispute 
over witnesses and documents between the legislative and executive branches. As a general principle, an objection or privilege asserted by one party cannot be deemed invalid, let alone impeachable, simply because the opposing party disagrees with it. Before the House even authorized its impeachment inquiry, it issued 23 subpoenas to current and former administration officials. When the House and the President could not reach an accommodation, the House failed to compel testimony and document production. The House actually withdrew a subpoena seeking testimony from Dr. Charles Kupperman, a national security aide, once he went to court for guidance. And the House chose not to issue a subpoena to John Bolton, the national security advisor whom the House has identified as the key witness. At a minimum, the House should have pursued the full extent of its own remedies before bringing impeachment charges, including by seeking the assistance of a neutral third party, the judicial branch. In making these choices, the House substituted its own political preference for speed over finality. The House managers described impeachment as a last resort for the Congress. In this case, however, the House chose to skip the basic steps of judicial adjudication and instead leapt straight to impeachment as the first resort. Therefore, I will vote to acquit on Article 2. Madam President, this decision is not about whether you like or dislike this president or agree with or oppose his policies or approve or disapprove of his conduct in other circumstances. Rather, it is about whether the charges meet the very high constitutional standard of treason, bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanors. It has been 230 years since George Washington first took the oath of office, and there are good reasons why during that entire time the Senate has never removed a president. Such a move would not only affect the sitting president, but could have unpredictable and potentially adverse consequences for public confidence in our electoral process. It is my judgment that except when extraordinary circumstances require a different result, we should entrust to the people the most fundamental decision of a democracy, namely, who should lead their country.
Thank you, Madam President. The Impeachment is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo in Washington, D.C. From the Goat Rodeo team, supervising producer Megan Adolsky, creative producer Shar Dreyer, executive producer Ian Enright. From the Lawfare team, Susan Hennessy, Benjamin Wittes, Margaret Taylor, Michaela Fogel, Quinta Jurassic, Jacob Schultz, David Priest, Hadley Baker, Hannah Chris. Special thanks to Caitlin Riley and John Weiss. The impeachment will continue tomorrow. Until next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.